This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. We're still thinking about that victory in the midterms where the Democrats won by the largest popular vote margin for either party in history. But there was a deeper and more significant victory hidden behind those numbers. Kai Wright will explain. But first, Michelle Obama. Her book, Becoming, is out now. Trump Watch starts right now. For that, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a scholar-in-residence at the Center for the Study of Michelle Obama. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The LA Times, The Washington Post, and lots more. She's best known for her work on Haiti, including the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, the Obamas got a $65 million advance for a book by each of them. Now hers is out. She's doing a superstar book tour here in L.A., where we record our show. Her book event was not at a bookstore, but at the Forum in Inglewood, where the Lakers used to play. It has 17,000 seats. It was sold out for her event. She has similar venues in other cities. Not your typical author appearance. I heard that some of the seats were going for $3,000. That's the scalper prices. Scalper prices are still prices. Well, we're interested in what the book has to say about politics because hers were a bit mysterious, maybe more complicated than she let on. She was part of two presidential campaigns, a decade at the top of American politics. And of course, the Republicans went after her. Starting in 2008, with all the fury and all the lies they could launch, she reminds us about that at the very beginning of her book. Yeah, she, she says she wants to take apart the three words, angry black woman, which is the worst thing that she is for those people. Um, and she believes that it's her blackness and her femininity that were the real targets of the people who were detracting from her stature when she was campaigning with her husband. Also, while Barack Obama, as she often says, was kind of a unicorn and a hybrid and a very different kind of person with Kenyan ancestry and, and just a, a, very, a very strange being, she herself was an American-born black American, and that's why she feels a lot of the hatred came down on her. We look to Michelle's book to learn what she has to say about her real politics in her story about growing up, it's important to her, as you've said, that she's from Chicago's South Side, a legendary black neighborhood in America, maybe second only to Harlem. And in high school, she was best friends with Jesse Jackson's daughter around their house a lot as Jesse was preparing to run for president. What does Michelle have to say about being in the center of black militant politics in America in the, in the 80s? She wasn't that into it. <laughs> she says it was kind of fun and interesting, and there were sometimes famous people there, and it largely stood in the way of her and her friend Santita Jackson getting to where they wanted to go because they were relying on the grown-ups, and the grown-ups would like have to stop off at a meeting and then have to stop off at some you know place where they picked up food for some rally, and then they wouldn't get to the shoe store in time to catch the sale. She actually says, I liked seeing what they were doing, but, quote, I needed rather desperately to get to the water tower place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. 
So, I mean, she's portraying herself as a teenage all-American girl, and she wants her readers to empathize with that and to relate to it. She's very concerned with making herself what my students all call relatable, rather than high-class first lady with intellectual interests. Or, or someone, even as a teenager, engaged with the political project of black America. And yet she knew very well that her family had decided to stay on the South Side when many people moved out, not just white people, but middle-class black people. She wanted to remain there. Her family wanted to remain there. Her father was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was very involved in Democratic politics. She has to have known more than just when the K-Swiss sneaker sale was on. And of course, she went to Princeton because her older brother, Craig Robinson, was already there as a basketball star. She was at Princeton from 81 to 85. She says she had never lived in a white world before. At Princeton, she says she lived mostly in a black student world, hanging around at the Third World Center. The interesting thing to me is that the chapter on Princeton, she says nothing about ideas, courses, books, arguments, even though she minored in African-American studies. I know. It's a really strange thing. She has to have been thinking and growing politically while she was there. Also, the experience of being the only black kid in a classroom or seeing yourself as one of a very tiny minority in such a white bastion as Princeton, after having lived on the south side of Chicago, has to have been completely disorienting. She talks about it to a degree, and she talks about meeting her roommates and having a white roommate who didn't want to live with her anymore. And she talks about being around her older brother and at the Third World Center. Yes, that's what it was called then. But she doesn't mention, you know, reading Franz Fanon or Marx or any, or Malcolm X or, uh, you know, any of the grand figures from African-American writing. In contrast, Obama's book about when he went to Occidental College is all about how opened his eyes to be in black studies and to read Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a transformative experience as he tells his story. Of course, he was a kid from Hawaii who wasn't really African-American at all, as you have said. But still, you wonder if there wasn't more to her intellectual life at Princeton, or, or maybe there wasn't. Well, I think there was. I think there has to have been. Then she wrote her senior honors thesis, which has been a a subject of great contention and was taken out of context in certain ways by people who despise her and think she's uppity. (laughs) But this this thesis, uh, which I read, uh, albeit a long time ago, is really interesting because what it's really about at its heart is about a person like Michelle Obama, a person who comes out of the community and goes to an Ivy League school and what happens to African-American kids who go to Ivy League schools and have all this elite training, what happens to their relationship with the community? Do they go back and give back, as we now say, or do they go on to Sidley Austin, which is where she was, and become, you know, mahers in the white world, in the system? Uh, And her conclusion was not too good for the black community. She found that many, many Princetonites, at least, her study was exclusively about Princeton, just basically abandoned the community. She met Barack in 1989. Barack had been 
a community organizer on the South Side for three years before he decided to go to law school and then came back. I mean, she barely mentions the fact that her uh, husband had been a community organizer for three years in her neighborhood. Yeah, she doesn't seem interested in it at all. She doesn't seem to have really talked to him very much about it, although there are, there's a paragraph here or there about, you know, being at a bar and having him talk about community organizing. But it doesn't seem to be the top of her list about things she treasures in him. There's some interesting stuff about American politics in her account of the 2008 primary campaign. She has a lot of complaints about unfair treatment from, she cites by name, Maureen Dowd and our man Christopher Hitchens. Well, Maureen Dowd, you you just have to live with Maureen Dowd being mean to you if you're a public person. She's always going to find some way to cruelly take you down. Um, And the Hitchens thing, I think what bothered Michelle Obama about it was he said that her senior thesis you couldn't really even read. He said to use the word read would really be overstating it because it was so impossible to read. But I read it. It wasn't that hard. It was pretty readable. So I don't know what he was talking about. I think it was, as she correctly perceived it, just a diss of the kind of person she is. Then there was that Probably her most famous statement in the 2008 campaign when, after Obama won the nomination, she said, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. We kind of know, or we think we know what she meant, that black man could run for president, huge thing in American history. It was a classic political gaffe when somebody says something true that you're not supposed to say. And after that, we think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought, but it got her in a lot of trouble. And in the book, she takes this up and says she was just misunderstood. Yes, she says she was misunderstood. She was very proud of her family for having gotten through this election. The country was so nice to them. She was proud to be American because of the back and forth between America and their family. It was so heartening to be a black person and receive this kind of understanding when for so long one had feared that one might not. All of these things, but never really addressing why that kind of a statement would be so incendiary to so many. But what interested me, too, is that afterwards, she kind of went to Barack and said, I'm so sorry. I never realized that would be taken in that way. I speak too freely. What should we do? And then, like 20 minutes later, she had a team. (laughs) And she had a personal aide. She had a scheduler. She had a media consultant. She had an airplane. And she had hair and makeup on the plane. (laughs) So that's what fixed Michelle Obama and stopped her really from speaking in that way. And uh, what she said, her media consultant told her was to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about. And what did that turn out to be? That turned out to be my love for my husband and my kids, my connection to working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. I guess the Chicago's a little a little incendiary. <laughs> Only a little. No, but what's interesting about that is what she was told by her media consultant was essentially assume the role of the first lady already. Before your first lady, act like a first lady. Concern yourself with women's problems, women's things, and your husband and your children, and stop talking about, you know, politics. And in fact, there's very little about the other parts of the campaigns, the people they're running against, how they get votes, how they don't get votes. She talks about this 
great post uh, first time I've been proud of my country. Uh, after that, her first appearance on The View, where she sat around with the usual suspects, and she says, quote, talking about attacks against me, yes, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's just, it hurts me to, to read that. And then she says, and people started buying the black and white dress that I was wearing on the show. I was having an impact. In the 2016 campaign, she was back on the road campaigning now for Hillary and against Trump. You know, I think a lot of us think her greatest moment came in the speech she gave right after Trump's Access Hollywood pussy grabbing tape. Let's listen to a little bit of it. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this, and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts, it, it hurts. It's a great speech, it's a political speech. Uh, she has the tremor in the voice, the tremor in the voice is not fake. And uh, and she has two girls. And, you know, I was making fun just now about her saying the things I really care about are only my girls and my husband and my pantyhose. But she cares about how her girls grow up in America. And this was horrifying to her. And to see a candidate like that running, I don't want to get a tremor in my voice, <laughs> but against a woman of really a reasonable stature, political stature, and able to talk like that. And indeed, Michelle was right. It was swept under the rug, essentially. It may come back to haunt him, but... The New York Times the next day, commenting on that speech, called her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history, close quote. What does she say about this in the book? She describes this very momentous thing in one paragraph as if she's, uh, as if she's not so proud of it. And she should be really proud of it. Not only was it a great speech, and no doubt partly at least written by her, but perfectly delivered. And finally comes the bad ending of the whole story. Obama is replaced in the White House by Donald Trump. They did everything they could on the campaign trail to prevent that, and they failed. We wonder, why does she think about this? Why does she think Trump got elected? Why did Hillary lose? Was there anything Obama could have done as president to have made the Democrats stronger in 2016? How does she explain Trump's victory in the book? She says, I'm not a political person, and so I'm not going to attempt an analysis. And that is just a giant cop-out on so many levels, really. First of all, 
she's a political person. Second of all, she's done an analysis of it. Why isn't she offering that analysis? That's a really important analysis for the American people to hear. But she and the editors of her book have decided not to permit that to be put into print. And at the end, she sums up Barack's accomplishments as president and her own as first lady. Well, there's the vegetable garden, and it's bigger than it ever was, and she's put some new trees in it. There's the um, new set of dishware, the Obama presidential dishware that she oversaw. There's the um, campaign for kids' healthy eating, crucially important, especially in the black community because of so much eating out at fast food restaurants. And the the concomitant Let's Move, which is the dancing exercise program that she propagated. And what else? That's pretty much it. Programs in the third world for girls' education. And summing up what Barack accomplished in eight years in the White House, I thought it was a little strange that Obamacare comes fifth on her list. Her list of Obama's achievements are the economic recovery, the Paris Climate Agreement, bringing troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan, even though I think they're still there, there. (laughs) uh, and the Iran nuclear deal. And then she doesn't even call it Obamacare. She calls it health insurance. And all this gets one paragraph in a 400-page book. So this is not a political book. It's not a book about what she learned about politics or how she learned to do politics or how the Obamas changed politics in America. What kind of book is it? So what I think is that it it has a carefully crafted uh, demographic target, and that target is women. I think it's women voters, and that she doesn't want to bore us with policy. Um, He's surrounded by her family in the White House. There's no question but that they talked politics all the time, not just policy, but like which senators can you get, which congressmen should you be speaking to, They're from Chicago. They're a political family from Chicago. Those people talk politics like it's Rice Krispies. And all of that is really missing from this book. You know, I wonder, is it possible that Michelle Obama actually is not a political person, that the thing she cares most about is childhood obesity and healthy eating? We would like her to be more political, more of a left-wing Democrat, and maybe she isn't. She's a kind of a caught person. Whatever politics there are, she is not at a point right now where she wants to discuss that. But I also think that those issues that you talk about, uh, childhood obesity and the let's move uh, idea, are political issues, and that she thinks of them that way. It's not like decorating the White House, and it's not indeed like um, like getting a new set of dishware, although I sense in reading about her getting the dishware that she feels it is political. Like the first black president is going to have a set of damn dishes in the White House, and they're going to have those two incredible portraits that no one is going to claim they're not black Americans when they see those portraits. They're really special. And I think so that I think that what she did was she spun her politics around so that she could conform to the first lady role, even though she is this special Michelle Robinson, actually, and um, instead said to herself, okay, I'll do these things that look first lady-ish, but I know they're political. I know that feeding poor people good food is political, and that's what my first lady campaigns have been about.
You wanted to say something about the cover photo of this book. I wanted to speak directly to the shoulder. So it's a gorgeous picture of Michelle Obama, and she's beautiful, and everybody knows that. But still, I would say, don't expose your shoulder. Let me describe it. It's like, um, it's like from Bride magazine. It's very Oprah lean in-ish. It's very beautiful. She, her, you know, her hand is in it. She looks so semi-thoughtful but beaming. It's just, it's a, it's a total beauty shot picture. Not of a woman working. It's not of a woman doing anything except posing <laughs> for the camera. One shoulder is exposed, and on the other shoulder is the Oprah book book club insignia. It's a little weird to me to come so femme at me on the cover of this book, like like that's what she's about. And I don't think it's that that she's about. Well, we're talking here as if now that it's over, she should tell us the real story the of what she really thinks, but maybe it's not over. Well, this was my thought in reading it, that it is such a carefully scrubbed and attended to book. She's left so much politics out. Who does that, really? Who leaves politics out of what they say? Politicians. <laughs> and then, so I thought, she's running for office, and she's kind of clearing the, the stage. She's getting rid of all the garbage from her past and not um, certainly not bringing any new stuff in. And at the end, she says, I am never running for office, never, never, never. But do I believe that? Not from reading this book. And she's doing a book tour in 15,000-seat arenas. And what else is the purpose of this book? Is it to tell Michelle Obama's story? It's to tell the story of becoming Michelle Obama and onward. And onward. Amy Willens wrote about Michelle Obama for the Washington Post. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We're still thinking about the midterms. The Democrats, you will recall, needed 23 seats to retake the House. They won at least 39, probably 40. They got more than 53% of the vote. That's the largest popular vote margin in history for either party, bigger than the Watergate midterm after Nixon resigned in 1974. That was 44 years ago. But there was a deeper and more significant victory hidden behind those numbers. For comment, we turn to Kai Wright. He's host of WNYC's terrific podcast, The United States of Anxiety. It's now in its third season. He's also head of WNYC's narrative unit, and he's a columnist for The Nation. Kai Wright, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what, for you, was the real midterm victory? Let's, let's start with Georgia, where, of course, Stacey Abrams ran for governor. Well, I mean, there are many, many midterm victories, actually, but I think the one I'm really interested in is what is happening in the South for the Democratic Party. Huge swaths of the South are sort of 
area number one on the list of the places that Democrats as a national party uh, long ago wrote off as, okay, well, that's red territory. We won't invest in actually fostering a debate in those places. We won't invest literally in terms of money and resources, and we won't invest in terms of trying to actually develop candidates and develop uh, the party, the infrastructure there. It's it's a stance that produces the the outcome you would expect, right? Like it remains... Uh, deeply red territory, despite the fact that there are not only there's demographic change happening in terms of the number of young people and people of color and migrants from around the country that are moving to those places, but also even before the change, this is the blackest part of the country. And so what we saw in this election cycle was, I hope, and I, and I think I, I, I can say without hyperbole, I think it's the beginning of the end of that. Saw. So, uh, um, some races all in different ways, um, from Stacey Gabrams in Georgia to Beto O'Rourke in Texas to Andrew Gillum uh, in Florida, all in their own ways, start to say, nope, there's a party here. There is a progressive movement here, uh, and it deserves representation. But Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, and Beto O'Rourke did not win. <laughs> that is correct. But I think there's, there's important things to think about in those losses. First off, Certainly in Texas and in Georgia, it should have never been a conversation in the first place. So to, to be very clear, these are races that a year ago were, in no, were not in debate about whether or not they would be Republican seats. And these are places that were nonetheless hard fought. And in Georgia, it has ended only because Stacey Abrams decided not to continue her legal battle. And these are places that took enormous amounts of voter suppression in order for them to even hold their seats. So these became enormously competitive places that were not. But it's not just about the outcome of the election. Part of Stacey Abrams' success was that she ran a statewide campaign. Democrats in Georgia since at least the early 90s have been running very localized campaigns. and then saying, well, we want to win Atlanta, we want to run up the vote in places where they have a lot of black people, and we want to try to to, to draw out uh, moderate whites in those exurbs around those cities. And so that informed the kind of candidates that they chose, um, and it formed the kind of strategy that they chose. That isn't just about whether or not she flipped a given county from red to blue. It's that she made those, she got votes out in those counties. Democrats who had not been engaged now are, and I visited a number of these counties where you have people that are in red places and who were not part of the political conversation, never felt like they were invited into political conversation, and who are now activated and who are now building a party in their county. And that's going to have an impact not just on who's governor, it's going to have an impact on the county commissions, it's going to have an impact on House seats, it's going to have an impact on the state legislature. The Democrats won something like 12 uh, new seats, 12 seats, picked up something like 12 seats in the Georgia state legislature. So it's not just the governor. It's all the way down the ticket. You start to build a party. And when you do that, you start to change a the state. There was a, a big uh, article in the New York Times on Sunday, page one article. The headline was Across the South. Democrats who speak boldly risk alienating rural white voters. They pointed out that the people we're talking about, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, and Beto O'Rourke, quote, may have electrified black and progressive white voters, but they had an equal and opposite effect as well. In rural counties, this trio of next-generation Democrats performed worse than Obama did in 2012, close quote. What do you think about that? 
it was it was destined that we would arrive in this debate. This is the debate we went into the campaign with, yes, right? You know, is. I mean, there is a part of the party that says, no, 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 the strategy here has to be that you need to run candidates that appeal to conservative white voters. They would call them moderate white voters. I would call them conservative white voters. You have to run candidates that appeal to those people, and that's the way you're going to win. And baked into that idea is that you take for granted, you presume that the black people and the actual progressives and the and all of the democratic constituencies will just come along with you. So you take those people for granted. So that's first off baked into that is that you've chosen that these people who are your party are the people who you will just assume will come. And so then you will go and pursue, you will build your strategy around, you have to reach these conservative whites. That has proven to be an utter failure. Stacey Abrams got a higher share of the Democratic vote than any than any Democrat since 1998. Four million people voted in a midterm election. Listen, if you pick a fight, yeah, your opponent's going to fight back. It, it, that's a truism, right? If you don't pick a fight, you'll lose. Take Florida, for example. Now that one of the most undertold stories of this election is that somewhere between a million and a million point five people have been reenfranchised in Florida as a consequence of of the initiative that gave felons their right to vote back. We haven't decided an election in Florida by less than by more than a hundred thousand votes in a long time. If ten percent of those people go to the polls, Florida's a different place. And and they are overwhelmingly African American. And in fact, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gilliman Betham did have a strategy for appealing to, quote, those people, uh, talk about health care, talk about Medicare for all, talk about raising the minimum wage, the famous bread and butter kitchen table issues, which actually would help poor rural white people in the South. It's true. And, and you know, but I, I, and I don't want to I'm not being a Pollyanna here, you know, like the, the reality is. Uh, that white supremacy is a thing, that the Republican Party has mobilized on it very well, that uh, there are huge hunks of the white electorate right now that no matter what piece of policy you're talking to them about, if you are a candidate of color, if you are a Democratic candidate, if you are associated with a part with the Democratic Party that is saying, hey, we believe in pluralism, that you're going to vote against that party. I, that That's true. There's a, there, we know that, right? If, if, if there was ever any confusion about that, Donald Trump has laid that there. But that is not, it does not logically follow then that you concede to that movement and say, oh, well, okay, well, that's where we're at. If they get the power, we have to figure out how to like put ourselves, figure out how to package ourselves for them. No, you have to say, well, we don't believe in that vision of America. And so we need to figure out how we can build a party that doesn't, that, that challenges that vision of America. And if that's your starting point versus this sort of consultant driven, how do we win in 2020 thing, then it's a no brainer that you would run a camp, that you would be excited about a campaign like Stacey Abrams. On your podcast, The United States of Anxiety, you had a fantastic recent episode before the election. Uh, you found a secret group of women activists in Texas. Tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an example of what happens when you start to activate everywhere in the country and in every county of every state. Uh, this is a group of women. Some of them were Democrats. Some of them were moderate Republicans. Uh, some of them were apolitical. Um, we didn't. I never actually met them. Uh, uh, they were. They had to conceal their identity. We were introduced to them through uh, someone who was doing research on, on politics in Texas. They 
lived in a rural county. They were so appalled with the state of the Republican Party that they, they could no longer just go along with it. And they, so they believed in Beto O'Rourke's campaign, but they were terrified of admitting that publicly. Um, they were worried about being ostracized from their, from their faith communities. They were worried about the state of their businesses. Uh, if they were public about that, they were worried about what it would do to some of their personal relationships, including with their spouses, with their husbands. And so they began to literally organize in secret. They would gather in an undisclosed location uh, and they would volunteer. Some of them, the ones we spoke to, were the ones were the handful of them that were comfortable being more open. You know, they still had their names changed for for the for the show, uh, but they were willing to talk to us about the work. And and they expressed this mixture of bravery and fear. There's two things here: is that the stakes for people have gotten really, really high. For those of us who have been literally targeted by this administration and by the party that it represents, the stakes have gotten very high if you're a person of color, if you're an immigrant, if you're a woman. And so many people are prepared to do things that they never thought that they would do. And the question then for whether you're a movement that is trying to to, to whether we're social movements or whether it's the Democratic Party or another political party, are you going to actually engage with those people in their homes or are you going to write them off? Uh, and that is, that is also the, what, is, what is enraging about uh, a, a, a political analysis that says, oh, you know, forget that county in Texas, forget that county in Georgia. There are people there who are prepared to risk their lives. And you won't you won't risk a few dollars of your political party in order to support them is is disgusting. Kai Wright, his new column for the Nation is titled "What Was the Real Midterm Victory?" Read it at thenation.com. Kai, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.